Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Stuart Manuel. Stuart's a paramedic. He's previously been working in Paisley, but has taken on a job as the project lead for the Scottish Ambulance Service Major Trauma Triage Tool, and is here to chat to us today about the rollout of the trauma network and the triage tool that goes live, I think, is it late August, Stuart? Yeah, so it's expected to go live on the 30th of August this year. Fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on and chatting to us. No, thank you very much for having me. So let's kind of rewind a little bit and talk about why it is that we're bringing in this change. So what's the kind of rationale behind bringing in the major trauma network and the triage tools? Yeah, so the kind of history into trauma care, it's the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh looked into a Scottish trauma care and they actually found that the mortality rates and morbidity rates had actually been quite high, a lot higher than other Western countries, which there's a lot of research that kind of went into this and discovered that there was an improvement to be made in trauma care in Scotland. So this kind of prompted the Scottish Trauma Network to be implemented, and it was implemented back in 2016 to basically try and bring better trauma care to Scotland. So it aims to provide multidisciplinary teams and multi-speciality teams working together to provide a high standard of care to those that are significantly injured and affected by major trauma, with the idea of kind of connecting trauma care and bringing that standard of care to Scotland and improve outcomes of patients. Fantastic. So it's kind of, I guess, fairly data-led in terms of what's driving the changes. Yeah, there has been a lot of research into getting trauma care, get higher standard of care for patients. And there is a lot of research into the trauma networks, a lot of research into triage tools. And it's been implemented across the world. I mean, we look at United States and United States now get trauma networks well established in the United States. We found there's actually, there's been a 25% reduction in mortality rates, depending on what papers you read. And so much so that England actually introduced their own uh, trauma network back in 2012 as well. And recent papers completed by them, I think it was Marani Tal back in 2018, they looked at patients between the years 2008 and 2017, and it estimated there was a 19% increase in survival rates of patients since their network was introduced. So when we look at that data, it's a massive amount of patients this has benefited. And if we apply that kind of evidence to Scotland, it's expected that we would actually save 40 people per year who have suffered major trauma. So that's a staggering amount of people that, as a kind of pre-hospital environment, would manage and actually improve their outcomes when they suffer trauma. It's really phenomenal in terms of those numbers and percentages. And I guess you know, the obvious comparison that, that jumps to mind is the data that comes out about TXA and, and the increase in survival benefit that you get with tranexamic acid. And we're talking about a similar kind of level of, of survival benefit just by taking patients to the right hospital. Yeah, absolutely. It's about identifying what your patient needs depending on their injuries, their, their mechanisms, the physiology they have. And this kind of criteria of what hospital they should actually attend to improve their outcomes is a massive change into practice. And just something as simple as having that pathway in place can make a significant difference to a patient and even a patient's family for their kind of recovery and rehabilitation further down the line. Again, it's kind of it's really interesting because back in the day, you would just scoop and run with a broken patient to the nearest hospital that you had in your patch. But I guess that would mean that there's quite a few patients who are turning up sick at 
small hospitals that maybe don't have the specialist skills or as you say the, the rehab for down the line yeah absolutely and that's the kind of key point is currently the trauma network is live in the north and the east so the adult tool is actually being utilized in the north and east regions of the trauma network so currently as it stands in the southeast and the west we still have that pathway where we identify a significantly unwell patient or a major trauma patient we manage that patient accordingly with our protocols and we then convey that patient to the nearest A&E where they then get managed initially and then potentially they're going to be secondary transferred out to that point of definitive care they require. Now one of the big reasons for the kind of introduction to the trauma network and the introduction to triage tools is to basically provide patients with points of definitive care, get them to that definitive care point when appropriate and it's aimed to reduce secondary transfer rates. So the definition of a secondary transfer is taking a patient to that A&E department and then they're transferred out with to another hospital. Now, the reason we want to reduce that is because when we talk about secondary transfers, there's such a high association of increased mortality rates, increased morbidity rates associated with these secondary transfers. So by us introducing this network and introducing the triage tool, effectively we're trying to eliminate that need for a secondary transfer and get that patient to that definitive care they require at a much more timely manner. And certainly reduce the need for that secondary transfer. I mean, ultimately, there will be patients that are going to need a secondary transfer, depending on their injuries and depending on the state of that patient. But it's aimed to reduce these secondary transfers to improve that outcome for the patient in the long run. That makes good sense. I guess, not criticism, but the flaw in the plan would be, you know, that that's all very well in the central belt where you've got a choice of hospitals within reasonably short driving distances. But what about when you're up in Highland Scotland or out on the islands where you can't just kind of bypass because you need to catch a ferry to, to a big hospital or, or potentially have a you know multi-hour drive? What's the kind of criteria for starting to just scoop and run? Yeah, I think, like you say, you're, you're spoiled for choice in the central belt. And I think the, the key with this is when you have it in the central belt, when we use this triage tool, it's about identifying the right hospital for the right patient and not try to saturate a particular hospital with every form of trauma and it's using our clinical decision making using the triage tool to identify the most appropriate hospital for that patient so you, you say yeah you are, you're kind of spoiled for choice in the central belt where you can make that decision of what hospital to go to when you are kind of further out yeah that kind of clinical decision making we have you've got much more factors to consider the nearest mtc the nearest tu your local emergency hospital and that's where we have these clinicians on scene and we have that trauma desk which just sits in the acc which has that national overview of all the resources available to us so they can basically screen calls as a clinician on the desk and an SSD coordinator. So they'll sit on the desk and basically review all these trauma calls coming in through the C3 database. And they're screening to see if there's any trauma jobs coming in. And it might be they identify one and they'll preemptively send a team, either a trauma team, advanced practitioners, basics or a helimed to get to that patient in a bit more of a timely manner. Or alternatively, they might actually identify a crew that have been dispatched. So they'll ask them for the sit rep to get a better understanding of what that patient is. So they've got that preemptive decision of how this patient's going to be managed, what could depend on their situation. And we have that conversation. If we identify a patient that's over 45 minutes away from that particular hospital they require, we would discuss that with the trauma desk and decide on the best destination for that patient. And it might be that it's not feasible to get that patient to, let's say they require an MTC, it might not be feasible to get them to that MTC, where we would then have that decision of the discussion of where they're going to be transferred to and have that advanced team basically preemptively sent to a location to assist the crew or preemptively to a hospital for a retrieval. 
So I guess cutting down on the steps in the journey. I just want to, to kind of unpick, you've used a couple of terms there, MTCs and TUs. Just for the folk who are less familiar with the secondary care aspects of this, what do you mean by an MTC and, and what kind of defines an MTC versus a TU? Yeah, so a major trauma centre is what the MTC stands for. These major trauma centres are embedded in each region. So the four regions we mentioned earlier on in the Scottish Trauma Network. So we've got the Aberdeen Royal is the major trauma centre in the north. Nine Wells is in the east. The Edinburgh Royal is in the southeast, and then the Queen Elizabeth is in the west. Now, these major trauma centres will see the vast majority of major trauma patients and deal with them within their facility. As well as the four adult MTCs, we have three paediatric MTCs. So we've got the Royal Aberdeen Children's Hospital, the Royal Hospital for Children and Young People, Edinburgh, and the Royal Hospital for Children, Glasgow. And again, they will see the vast majority of paediatric patients. Now, when we talk about MTCs, the MTCs have to meet minimum requirements to be deemed a major trauma centre. And these minimum requirements are actually set out by the Scottish Trauma Network. Now, that list of what these minimum requirements are, is quite extensive, but it just means there's a lot more resources available to you at an MTC. And the majority of the facilities that a patient will ultimately need are within that MTC. So they don't have to be transferred out with that facility to another hospital to receive that definitive care. The trauma units as well, these trauma units are able to deal with major trauma patients that are too far away to be conveyed directly to that major trauma centre. And they're also there to manage patients that don't fit the SAS triage category to be transferred directly to an MTC. Now, again, the trauma units have to hit minimum requirements as well, set up by the STN, but there's just a kind of difference in what is available to them. The Scottish Trauma Network is aiming to connect in this network to basically provide that definitive care for patients. So can you give us an example of, a, of one of the trauma units that folk might come across? Uh, yeah, so I'm from the West, so I'll kind of go with the West. So we've got the Royal Alexandra Hospital, the Wishaw General and the GRI in Glasgow, and we also have the Dumfries and Galloway Borders and the Crosshouse in Comar. These are decent-sized hospitals with a, a decent A&E and intensive care facilities and the ability to manage some really sick patients, but just not necessarily absolutely everything that's on the cards for an MTC. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Okay, so I guess the next thing is to look at the factors that are going to make you decide to inform your use of the tool as to where these folks end up. So what are the kind of patient factors that push you towards an MTC rather than a trauma unit? Yeah, so these triage tools are evidence-based. There's Basically, when we apply the tools as a key point, so we would apply these tools to any patient who's significantly injured or involved at high mechanism incident, sorry. That's the, the key two points that prompt us to engage the triage tool in these, into these patients. So the categories we have is a stepwise approach. So we look from step one down to step four, and within each step, we have what we call trigger points that prompt us to lead us towards a particular hospital designation. So we have all the steps on one side and then the corresponding hospitals on the other, and a kind of flow chart that we see. So when we look at step one, if we look for this kind of big sick factors in patients, so these are, we're looking for the kind of observations that are demonstrating to us that our patient is significantly unwell, so the big sick factors in patients. So for step one, we look at the systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or no radio pulses, a Glasgow coma scale of less than 14, and a respiratory rate of less than 10 or greater than 29. If they were positive in step one, that would lead us to down to an MTC and transferring this patient to a major trauma centre. If we look at step two, if we've not found any points in step one, we jump ourselves down to step two, and this looks at the patient's injuries. And this looks for the 
big injured patients and potentially this is actually why the, the person or the clinicians actually engage the triage tool in the first place. They've seen that significant injury on scene, they've seen that assault anatomy and they're looking to apply this tool to see where the best triage decision would be for that patient. So when we look at the injuries that we're talking about, we look for penetrating injury to their head, neck, torso or extremities proximal to the elbow or knee, a chest wall instability or a deformity, two or more proximal limb fractures, a crushed, degloved, mangled or pulseless extremity, amputation proximal to the wrist or ankle, a suspected pelvic fracture, an open or depressed skull fracture, and the last one there is paralysis. And again, if we're positive in these step two, with the big injured factors, we would be conveying these patients to the major trauma centres for that kind of definitive care they require. Now, uh, really interesting there, you've picked out obviously the physiology that pushes you towards a shocked patient and the injury patterns. We've been chatting with various folk over the last year or so about the prevalence of silver trauma and, and trauma in the older patient. Is there anything that can nudge our decision-making one way or another based on age or frailty or comorbidities? So, yeah, so that kind of leads us into the step, obviously with step one and step two, these are the significantly unwell patients that are obviously seriously unwell. So when we kind of fall ourselves down into kind of step three, we look at the mechanisms of injury. So the mechanism of injury that's potentially going to be, we look for these kind of mechanisms of injury that are highly associated with major trauma. So we look into the mechanisms, we start thinking about falls greater than 20 feet, high-risk vehicle accidents, so like with a 12-inch intrusion, ejection, death in the same passenger compartment, the vehicle strike a pedestrian over 20 miles an hour, or a cyclist struck at over 20 miles an hour, and then a motorcycle accident at, again, over 20 miles per hour. So that's the kind of mechanism of injury we look at step three. When we kind of come into step four, it takes into that consideration of other special considerations. So it looks at patients that are potentially a bit harder to assess or maybe have some sort of underlying health condition and age does actually become a factor in it as well. So when we look at step four, it considers patients over the age of 55, any sort of bleeding disorders or anticoagulant treatments, pregnancy greater than 20 weeks and then morbid obesity and then also isolated burns. So this is the kind of further down the tool you get, you start to encapsulate other considerations as well. It's interesting that morbid obesity meets that criteria for, for actually changing your potential destination and it certainly reflects my kind of clinical practice in that actually these patients do significantly less well when exposed to major trauma. Yeah, and like I say, that's exactly why it's being considered into the triage tool because like I say, they potentially have that ability to disguise their injuries because of the, like the weight they are carrying. We've screened out with those four steps we've picked up on them a fair amount of patients post-traumatic injury. And are all of these going to get transported to an MTC? Uh, no, so not all of them will be transported to MTC. But look at step one and step two as they are prime candidates as they'll be deemed as major trauma positive patients. They was, these would be conveyed to the MTC where appropriate or if able. When we start moving down to step three, when we have, if we're positive in step three, this is where we consider taking our patient to the trauma unit. Granted, when we think of these mechanisms of injury, they are quite significant. There's a high energy shift involved in these, as everybody here will know. So they have that potential to be particularly unwell. However, we've gone through step one and step two. We've not hit any positive triggers in that the triage tool as yet. And this is why we've kind of fallen into this step three category. And this step three category would require us to convey this patient to the nearest trauma unit or, again, to the MTC if it's closer. Again, it's all going to depend on the geography of where you are and instant location. Um, so no, not everybody necessarily will be taken to an MTC. So this is where this kind of triage of getting the patient to the right place at the right time. 
And I guess back in the day, it used to be down to the crews to ring up their local ED to say, I've got this, do you guys want it? Do you want us to take it somewhere else? I'm guessing the thought process is to try and centralise that decision-making process. Yeah, absolutely. It's try to give that autonomy to clinicians as well, that the majority of clinicians who attend these patients know exactly where the, these patients need to be. But because the current pathways we have in place, we didn't have that ability to do that for our patients. We had to rely on advanced practitioners arriving or trauma team clinicians to make that decision of where they're going to transfer the patient. This triage tool gives us that ability to make that decision for our patient on scene and have that support from the trauma desk. If we have some sort of clinical or logistical support that we require, we can have that discussion with the trauma desk and actually make that decision as a collective decision making to make the best decision for our patient and where to triage them to. Okay, now you mentioned a minute or two ago, geography obviously plays a factor and all of us who work in rural Scotland know how much of a factor geography (laughs) is. What are the kind of cutoffs in terms of time as to when you're going to make that decision to go to the definitive place of care as opposed to a TU or a local hospital? The kind of time frame we're working off for the triage tool is a 45 minute window. So if we identify, well, I'll use the major trauma centre as an example, just for ease. So if we identify a major trauma patient, step one or step two, and we identify that patient should be conveyed directly to a major trauma centre. If we can convey that patient within 45 minutes of where we are, then we can convey that patient directly to that MTC. Now, that 45 minutes is based off when you're physically leaving scene. So when your wheels are turning or your the rotor blades are going, It's not based off when you arrive on scene. It's not when you start any critical intervention. It's actually that physical movement of you going towards that definitive care point is when that clock would start. If we are out with that 45 minutes of an MTC, we would contact our trauma desk or whoever's using the triage tool would contact the trauma desk, discuss that patient with them. As I mentioned earlier on, they have that national overview of all the resources that are available to us. It might be they'll be able to send like a trauma team, advanced practitioners, basics, helimed, or even suggest a rendezvous point en route towards that MTC, just so they have that advanced intervention available that allows that patient to be triaged that extra distance to that MTC, ultimately to the definitive care they require. If we don't have that availability, so if we contact the trauma desk and there's no support available, uh, they advise us, look, there's no support available, they're either out on another job or due to weather or whatever the reason might be, we would suggest taking our patient to the nearest trauma unit if again within 45 minutes if it's out with 45 minutes of a TU MTC then we would convey that patient to a local emergency hospital if that's the case we're already in contact with our trauma desk so we'd advise them that that's where our patient is going is just to make our trauma desk aware that there's potentially going to be a secondary transfer later on or a modified primary for our retrieval team at a later point in the day it's really interesting that that 45 minutes starts from the times when your wheels turn leaving scene because I guess Taking an example from round me in Pitlochry, if I'm at an RTC on the A9 and the crew hasn't been on station in Pitlochry, there's potentially a significant time delay between the point of injury, my arrival on scene, the crew's arrival on scene, and us having the, the patient in a position to leave scene. And we're then looking at greater than 45 minutes to nine wells, which would be our nearest MTC. So I guess it kind of brings in that decision-making process about actually where's the right place for this patient and do we just have to accept that we're going to have a longer transfer time but we're much better off heading to Dundee than rocking up with a really sick patient in Perth who I think would have a fit if we turned up with a polytrauma patient at their front door. Yeah I think as I say it's about that decision making it's as well we're trying if you look at times on scene as well we're trying to minimize the time on scene where we can like I say there's there's going to be always be the exception to jobs where 
no matter how much you're dealing with the patient, there's potentially going to be an extensive time on scene, depending on, like you say, the RTC, is the patient trapped, is there other issues that are at play, there's never going to be as simple as, right, let's just scoop and go. Sometimes that exception to the rule is there might be extensive times on scene, and it's just about trying to minimise that time on scene to minimise that transfer time as well. And I guess what you were saying in terms of potentially having a rendezvous or having other assets coming out to join us en route in, if we've identified a major trauma positive patient, we can then, the trauma desk can kind of get those secondary balls rolling, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, because that's the 45 minutes, if we have an advanced team on site, basic doctors or advanced practitioners, and it gives us that extra distance that we can travel because they can provide much more interventions that us on the road can, they have that ability to allow that patient to be transferred that extra distance to that definitive care point. It's interesting seeing how we as basics responders fit into that model and and potentially have a a degree of temporising effect when we've got long distances to work with, particularly for the, the folk up in rural Scotland, which is where the majority of our responders are based. Yeah, well, like you say, we work with basic, you work rural, so you're, yeah, don't say you're used to the situation, but <laughs> you're, you're quite well adapted in working in these rural conditions and you you have that kind of, let's like say it's a lifeline of these basics as, as a lifeline, particularly in the rural Scotland. And interesting from my point of view, clearly Nine Wells is my nearest major trauma centre and most folk will have a pretty well established link with their major trauma centre. But if, for example, folk up in the northwest of Scotland almost all of their patients are going to end up going to Inverness, to Rig Moor. But that triage tool is still relevant because it can mean that your secondary assets are coming up to Rig Moor to rendezvous and potentially do a retrieval from Rig Moor to a, a major trauma centre for certain patients. Exactly. And that's the thing. It's, it's the best key communication is if we identify major trauma patients early and we alert our trauma desk as soon as practical, then yeah, it, it makes things a lot get things the ball rolling a lot quicker and okay do we transfer to the trauma unit but the trauma units are still able to manage these patients that are too far away to be conveyed directly to an MTC so they have that capability to manage it but like you say they have that by us mobilizing these teams early it minimizes that delay and reduces that time of the secondary transfer and that's the kind of key point is try to reduce the amount of time that they're away from that kind of definitive care. Now you mentioned earlier on that part of what's driven this has been data collection and I'm guessing we're going to be quite keen to try and continue that data collection to see if the, the tool is working, to try and update or adapt parts of it. How is that data being captured and what's the plan to interpret it? Through the SAS perspective, we document through our ePACER tablets. So we have now got the triage tools, both adult and paediatric, actually uploaded onto the, the tablets itself. So we can either use that tablet as a a triage decision tool. So rather than us using the hard copies or our GRCalc mobile apps, we can actually use the triage tool on the tablet to make that triage decision for us. Now, some crews take the tablet in. Personally, I don't because I will leave it and I'll end up having to go back to find it. So like you say, some folk will do it and that's, that's key. We can use that there. Or we can document it at the end of the job, particularly if it is a major trauma job. It's going to be quite a busy job, so you're not going to be focusing on your paperwork, which is absolutely fine. We totally understand that. It's just the key importance is that we actually document the use of it on the triage tool, as if we don't actually capture that data, then we don't know where the tool's been used. We don't know if it's actually working in practice. So we can't develop it, particularly if there's a particular region where it's you see a change in practice that we can't actually see that change unless it's documented to see where it's been used. And the Scottish Trauma Network actually audit us. They use key performance indicators or KPIs and there's three of them directly relate to us. So 
The first one is patients who are actually, actually suffer major trauma are actually assessed using the triage tool or are significantly injured or been involved in high mechanism injury. The second one is we actually pre-alert these patients. Any major trauma positive patient is pre-alerted to the MTC. And the last one is if any patient is identified to be conveyed to an MTC, and if they're conveyed within 45 minutes to the MTC. So these are directly integrated into that PACER system. So by us documenting it, we're actually completing that audit process for us so we can see where it's working, we can see if it's actually been applied in practice and if it's benefiting patients and benefiting their outcomes. So I'm guessing even if you are in, let's say, the northwest of Scotland and, and you know that your your sick patient is going to go to Rakemore, actually there's still benefit there both in terms of the data but also in terms of your pre-alerting Scott Star that there may be a secondary retrieval about to kick off. So there's kind of benefits for the patient and for wider patients. Yeah, absolutely. It captures quite a wide amount of data. It's not just about the triage tool, it's about the bigger response as well. Now we've not mentioned the paediatric triage tool. I'm guessing it works in a pretty similar way as the adult one. Yes, yeah, so paediatric triage tool follows the exact same pathway or the exact same flow as the adult tool. It's a different colour. So first of all, the triage tool is a bit different colour, so you don't mix the two of them up. And it's worded to be a bit differently, but it's basically the same principle. It should be applied to any kid who's involved in a high mechanism incident or is significantly injured or significantly unwell. And it should be applied to paediatrics under the age of 16 years old. And again, step one down to step four, and then the corresponding hospital on the right-hand side. Step one and two, again, major trauma centre and so on and so forth. So it's the exact same as the adult tool flow. The only difference is we have a kind of physiological references box, so an observations box of what we'd expect their observations to be for their age group. We've put that in there basically because it's quite hard to define what abnormal physiology would be or in a tool that covers such a wide age range of birth up to the age of 16. So we have that in front of us if we want a quick reference rather than having to flick through GRCalc or flick through your phone to actually find that data. The actual kind of trigger points within the steps are slightly different. Some of them are very similar to the adult tools, but there is some differences, which I'm happy to go through. Yeah, it'd be worth picking out the key differences, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, step one, again, looks at the big sick patients. So for peds, we're looking for abnormal vital signs for their age, which is not explained by pain or distress, abnormal conscious level, and then the catastrophic hemorrhage. Again, that would be transferred to an MTC. Step two, again, looks at the patient's injuries. I'll just give you the differences for the, the PEDS tool on this one. Is the suspected spinal injury with new onset neurology, significant bruising to their chest or abdomen, suspected pelvic fractures in the adult one as well, uh, multiple and or single open long bone fractures, and then burns and scrawls greater than 20% body surface area and or facial or circumferential burns from flame. So that's the kind of differences compared to the adult tool. If you look at step three, again, it looks at the mechanism of injury. The kind of big differences for the PEDS tool is the bullseye damage to the windscreen or damage to the A-post, so the pedestrian basically striking the outside of the vehicle. An uninterrupted fall over two times the patient's height, so if that patient's three feet tall, six feet and above would be two times that patient's height, and it's from point A to point B. It's not the actual physical action of them bouncing down the stairs. However, if your patient does bounce down the stairs, it doesn't necessarily rule out major trauma, so it's worth considering that when you're actually assessing these patients as well. And the last one there is the bicycle handlebar injury with abdominal and or groin pain. The step four, the only difference, if the crew has got significant concern for that patient, if they've got that concern, then they can absolutely, again, contact the trauma desk and discuss that patient together. And it's great having that clinician reach back that you can chat through because there's, there's a few patients where you know it might not be entirely clear cut or you've not got a great history and being able to run that past somebody is probably quite reassuring, I'd have thought. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's quite difficult, particularly if you're unseen yourself or 
you and your crew are having to manage this significantly unwell patient and there isn't that much history together it's providing a bit of more robust clinical decision making when you're making that decision together now Stuart we've been getting all of our presenters to give us three top tips like takeaways to hold in their brains after listening to this what are your suggestions in terms of the kind of implementation of the major trauma triage tool yeah so probably I'd say the three top tips I would give is Use the tool when it's applicable. So when you come across that patient who's significantly unwell, they've been involved in a high mechanism incident or they are significantly injured, apply the tool to that patient so we can get that triage decision and make the best decision for our patient. If you do need support, if you think you want some clinical decision-making support or logistical support or you want to request a team to come and assist you, contact that trauma desk. Don't, don't feel you can't contact the trauma desk. If there's any point you think you need some support, contact that trauma desk and seek it out. And the last one is the key. I've probably heard about this and all the crews that I've done the sessions with are probably sick of hearing this, but documentation. When we apply the tool, it's important whether the patient's major trauma positive or major trauma negative or whatever hospital destination that patient goes to, documentation is key when we apply these tools to our patients. Stuart, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And obviously, good luck with the rollout. And I think this is got huge potential to help our traumatically injured patients and to improve our standards and hopefully get our numbers looking a little bit like some of the rest of Western Europe who seem to be doing better than us. The benefit is to try and improve patient care and improve outcomes for patients is the ultimate goal. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Excellent. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. 